Let's pray. Father, you are holy, you are worthy of our worship, and we are grateful to you for revealing yourself to us. We're thankful that you have saved us from our sins. You have given us the desire to know you, to know you more fully, that you've given us the capacity for worship, and that you've given us the ability to worship you through the Lord Jesus. We thank you that now we have the opportunity to open the scriptures, and we pray that as we do so, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. Help us to understand the things that we're going to read, and perhaps more importantly, to apply them rightly. We're going to see things, Father, that, that are perhaps easy to understand, but, but maybe not so easy to apply rightly, and we, we pray that you would help us with these things. We love you, Father, and we ask for all of this help in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26, we're going to read the whole chapter, so if you would stand with me as you find your place there. If you're reading from the English Standard Version, you likely have two section headings, but I would suggest that this passage actually breaks itself neatly into four sections, so... My challenge to you is to try to find those four sections. There's, the first section is actually going to break itself into two, and the second section into two. So see if you can find where the text kind of shifts in the kinds of sentences that it uses. Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves, or erect an image or pillar, And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord your God. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go throughout your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. 
You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will desolate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and will unsheath the sword after you. And your land shall be in desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. 
But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and rules and laws that the Lord made with him and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. You may be seated. The book of Leviticus assumes the central reality of human existence, which is that man was created for fellowship with God. And the book of Leviticus also seeks to answer this central question of human history, which is how can sinful man enter the presence of God to enjoy that fellowship? And so we have, we've seen that the people of Israel, they've entered a covenant with God whereby He has made a way for them to be close to Him. He's given them sacrifices to deal with their sins so that they can enjoy fellowship with Him. And and what we've read here in chapter 26 is typical of an ancient Near Eastern covenant. It It is typical of an ancient Near Eastern covenant to lay out blessings for keeping a covenant and curses for failing to keep that covenant. And we've consistently, over these weeks of studying this book, we've seen similarities and differences between this old covenant and the new covenant in Christ's blood. And when we read a chapter like this one, where we see blessings attached to obedience and curses attached to disobedience, we may be tempted to go to one of two extremes, especially as we look to apply these things. And one response I would call team buckle down. Team buckle down, here's all this talk of blessings and disobedience and, and, and curses for, for disobedience. We hear all of this and, and we find that there's actually much talk like this in the New Testament. And team buckle down says, oh no. I've got to buckle down and get serious about obedience because otherwise I'm in very deep trouble. Because based on my recent history, God can't be very happy with me right now. The the other extreme is what we might call team let go. Team let go reads a chapter like Leviticus 26 through the, the, the lens of the gospel and says, look, Christ obeyed the law for me. And so I receive all the blessings that there are. And Christ became a curse for me so that I don't receive any of the punishments. And so, 
My obedience is inconsequential. The problem is that both team buckle down and team let go. They both have elements of truth and yet they both miss the mark. And so if you find yourself in in one of those two groups, either team buckle down or team let go, you need some correction in your thinking as as it comes to what do we do with Leviticus chapter 26? And if you find yourself in one of those groups or leaning in one direction or the other, we've got some work to do. So, so hang in there because we, we've got some work to do in order to have the tools to think rightly about these things and to apply the word correctly. What we need to do this morning is to look at this chapter in the context of the progression of the revelation of God, see what's being communicated in Leviticus chapter 26, look at this Old Covenant in its context, and then look at the New Testament. Look at the New Covenant and consider how should we as New Covenant believers, how should we think about obedience and and blessing and cursing and disobedience? How should we think about all of these things? What place does obedience have in the life of the believer, if any? And what we'll find is that all of the covenants, all of them, are intended to move us toward salvation by grace through faith in Christ. A a salvation by faith that results in heartfelt obedience. What we're going to find is that God wants us to obey now in the new covenant no less than He did in the Old Covenant, in Leviticus chapter 26. But, our travel down the path of obedience in the New Covenant is fueled by faith in Christ. That's where we're going to end up this morning. But in order to get there again, we need to look at the Old Covenant in its context. And so what we find as we do that, particularly looking at Leviticus 26, We find in these first two verses of Leviticus 26, which is the first section of the chapter, the first two verses show us that there are commands that were befitting this covenant relationship. Commands befitting the covenant relationship. First in verse 21, there was a command that there should be no worship of false gods. Why was that? Because the Lord says, I am Yahweh, your God. You don't have any other gods. So there shouldn't be any other false worship. The second command came in verse 2, and we might think of it as a dual command. The first command was, you shall keep my Sabbaths. And by now, it should be obvious that this means more than just don't work on Saturdays. We got three chapters in chapters 23 through 25 indicating that keep my Sabbaths means enjoy rest and fellowship in my presence at the appropriate times. It's another way of saying, Do what you were created to do, which is enjoy me. The second part of that dual command in in verse 2 is revere my sanctuary. Revere my presence. Revere this ability to enjoy me on the Sabbath. In these first two verses, these commands, they represent what God deserves by virtue of His divinity, by virtue of His rescuing the people from Egypt, and by virtue of His entering a covenant with the people. This is what God deserves. He deserves their faithfulness 
and their worship. Now, these, these, these commands also represent what the people need. It's not just what God deserves. It's what is good for the people. It's what's good for all mankind. Man was created for fellowship with Yahweh. And so in, in God's commanding the people to do these things, don't worship anyone else, but enter rest and fellowship with me. God is commanding the people to do what is best for them. So these commands are appropriate to this covenant relationship. Then we move to the second section of this chapter, which is verses 3 through 13. We find that obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. Verses 3 and 4 again read, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will, he will what? Well, he's going to bless them with all kinds of things. Rain and agricultural multiplication. He's going to bless them with food. He's going to bless them by eradicating the land of wild beasts and enemies. But the really big blessing, the the great blessing that God is going to give them comes in verses 11 and 12. Look there again. It says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, especially there in verse 12. Does that sound familiar? I will walk among you. That, that language evokes Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. In Genesis 3, 8, we read this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, this is just after the man and the woman sinned, but, but it reminds us that this was the norm back in Eden. God walking among the people. And so this here in verses 11 and 12, this is one of the clearest indications in the Old Testament that something like a return to Eden is the goal of God's redemptive work for His people. So God says, abstain from false worship. Enjoy me in in, in fellowship on the Sabbaths. And in return, it's going to look like Eden. I'm going to walk among you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. That's verses uh, 3 through 13. Then we move to the next section, verses 14 through 39, and we find that disobedience brings curses. Disobedience brings curses. Now, within that section that shows disobedience bringing curses, we find five cycles of this. Five cycles of the Lord saying, if you disobey, then I'll do this. Five times. And with each cycle... The punishments escalate. And and what we really want to notice as as we look at these five cycles, and we don't have time to go through all of them, we're going to go through them very quickly in in an abbreviated fashion. What we want to notice is how God characterizes their disobedience. You know, you and my you 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 and you and me, if we if if we were to to talk to God about our disobedience, we we might say something like like you you know it's it's nothing personal. It's not you. It's not that I don't like you. It's just that I love sin. It's, it's, it's not that I hate you. I just love this other stuff. But what we find as we look through verses 13 through 39 is that God characterizes sin in very personal terms. He characterizes it as personal hostility toward Him. Look at verse 15 again. If you Spurn my statutes. If your soul abhors my rules. 
I wonder if any of us have ever stepped in dog excrement. Have any of us ever done that? Am I the only one? Has anybody done that barefooted? Raise your hand if you've done that barefooted. Yeah, there's a brave hand. We, we tend to have a unique physiological and emotional response to that, don't we? I mean, there's a deep revulsion to feeling animal excrement on our bare skin. There's an interesting thing about this Hebrew word that's translated abhors here. It is, it is in the Old Testament the word of communicating revulsion against someone or something as if they are dung or filth. That's the verb here. That revulsion that we feel when, when we step in dog mess, that's the word that, that, that pictures, to an extent, how the sinner feels about God's rules. Because that's what God says here. That's what disobedience communicates to God about His law. I regard your rules as dung. That's how God receives it when we disobey. There's more of that kind of personal language in verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me. Now now that very literally is more, more accurately. If you go against me in hostility. Disobedience is not an impersonal thing, but it's going against God in hostility. We're showing hostility toward God. He uses that same phrase again in verse 23 and in verse 27. In this disobedience, it is a hostility toward God so deep that no punishment can turn the person back toward God. You're so bent against Him in hostility, no chastening can change our mind. No matter what God does to the people, they continue against Him. That's the point. Because He keeps saying, and, and if you still won't do it, then I'm going to do this. But they keep doing it. If you still won't turn to Me, then I'm going to do this. The punishments keep escalating. They keep escalating. And yet the people continue in hostility. That's what this kind of disobedience is. That's what any disobedience is. Is that brand of hostility toward God. No punishment will turn Me back toward Him. And what does that kind of hostility deserve? Well, we find throughout this, this passage again that the, the, the punishments escalate. And, and they come in waves in the form of, first of all, physical disease. God brings it upon the people, but it doesn't turn them back. And then agricultural difficulty. And God brings it upon them, but it doesn't turn them back. Oppression by enemies. They, they don't turn back. Oppression by wild beasts. They don't turn back. But then, then he brings the sword and plague and famine. How bad a famine? Famine so bad that ten women can bake in one oven. They don't turn back. back. He brings more famine. How bad a famine? Famine so bad that people eat their own children. Now you think about how bad, how, how hungry you have to be to do that. What, what is the most natural instinct in, in a human parent? In any parent in nature. That is to protect your young. God, God, God is saying that, that if you continue against me, I'm going to bring hunger on, upon you that is, is so awful, 
you're going to eat your children, you still won't turn to me. And so then what will God do? Exile. Exile. Verses 33 through 39, the largest section of punishment is about exile. Verse 33, I'll scatter you among the nations and I'll unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. And this is a big deal because what this is, is this is essentially God sending them back to Egypt. Not literal Egypt, but to a land like, like Egypt, back to their slavery. And it's not that He's doing this to, this to them uninformed or blind, but He's going to say this through the prophets over and over. If you don't turn back, I'm going to send you back to slavery. You're going to go back. And they keep turning against God in hostility over and over and over. And remember those verses that we peeked at last week in verses 34 and 35. God says, and then when you're, when you're in the, 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 the land of those other nations, then the land will enjoy the Sabbaths that it did not have when you were spurning my statutes, when you were abhorring my rules. Bottom line is that God is going to bring desolation. The price of disobedience is going to be steep. And all of it, God characterizes as His walking in hostility to them. So they've walked in hostility toward God. He's going to walk in hostility toward them. You, you think about all of the enemies in the world that you could make. An omnipotent God is not the enemy that you want to make. Because when He walks in hostility toward you, that is a hostility that you cannot bear. Now, even at that, is, is, is all of this purely punitive? Is it, is it, is it, is it purely vengeance? Is, is, is it the kind of punishment that, that you and I might bring against somebody? I'm just going to grind you into the ground because of what you've done to me. I want you to feel what you've done to me. Is, is that what God is doing? Certainly it is punishment, but the design of this punishment is to turn the people back to God, which is what is good for them. Because with with each of these cycles of, of punishment, God says, if you still won't listen, if you still won't turn back. Back, indicating that each, each, each cycle of punishment is intended to move the people to repent. It's not purely punitive. It's intended to move the people to repent. And in that vein, verses 40 through 45, which is the last section, the fourth section, verses 40 through 45, indicate that even in exile, even when, when they're in slavery in that foreign land, it will not be too late for them. There is a hope for restoration. There's hope for restoration. Verses 40 through 45 indicate that upon the repentance of the people, upon their confession and upon the humbling of their hearts, Yahweh will remember His covenant with their fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Verse 44, He says, I will not spurn them. Remember, that's the, that's the word that He used of their spurning His statutes. And He says, I will not abhor them. Same word that He used of their abhorring His, his rules. He won't 
in other words, upon their repentance, He will not treat them as their sins deserve. He will not treat them as their sins deserve. Makes me think of Psalm 103.10. Glorious Psalm. Psalm 103.10 reads this way, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Now, all, all of it, the whole, the whole chapter, and, and, and especially the last two sections, they are written as if it is a foregone conclusion that the people are not going to obey. I mean, a, a section on restoration assumes they're going to fail. But, but the, the big question is that after so many cycles of disobedience, Where is this repentance going to come from? This repentance that will lead to restoration. He says there in verse 41, if their uncircumcised heart is humbled. That is is a metaphor for repentance. How's that going to happen? Because it's not going to happen because of the chastening. That's implied over and over in this chapter. But we also have writings in the prophets later in the Old Testament. It says, chastening is not going to work to bring these people to repentance. Listen to Jeremiah 5.3. It's just one example of a prophet saying, chastening doesn't work with these people. It does not bring them to repentance. Jeremiah 5.3, you have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You've consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Verse 21 of that same chapter, Jeremiah 5, the Lord describes the people as having eyes but not seeing, having ears but not hearing. And he concludes in verse 23 of Jeremiah 5, this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. And what Jeremiah is communicating is something that Moses writes about in Deuteronomy 29, and that is that these people can't respond rightly Because of their deadness and sin. They can't. They cannot repent because of their deadness and sin. And with all of that in mind, the the kind of restoration that is written about in verses 40 through 45, and specifically the repentance that's depicted in verses 40 through 45, that's going to require some kind of miracle because they can't do it. And if it requires a miracle, How likely is that to happen? It's actually quite likely because there's a subtle feature in the text that we miss with some of our translations. See, as we go through that section of verses 14 through 39, the third section, we we see ifs over and over and over. If, over and over and over. If you obey, it actually extends all the way back up to verse 3. If you obey, then I'll do this. Then starting in verse 14 through 39, If you disobey, I'll do this. If you disobey, I'll do this. If, 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 if. But, we get to verse 40. It is more literally, but when they confess their guilt. When they confess their guilt. Isn't that odd? So so early in the chapter, most of the chapter, we have ifs piled sky high. But when, regarding the coming repentance, why would this be? I would suggest to you that there's a when in verse 40 because of a glorious feature of the new covenant, which we need to talk about next. But before we do that, before we start to talk about the new covenant, let's first of all just kind of 
summarize where the Old Covenant brings the people and what it says about all people, including us in this room and and everyone alive on the planet right now, even though none of us were partakers of the Old Covenant. What does the Old Covenant teach us about mankind? God requires obedience. If I don't obey, there will be punishment. And it will be rightful punishment. I can't obey. And so I'm doomed. That's what the Old Covenant teaches me. It teaches me about me. teaches me about you. teaches me about everybody. God requires obedience. If I don't obey, there will be punishment. But I can't obey So, I'm doomed. Aren't you glad the old covenant isn't called the only covenant? Aren't you glad there's a new covenant? Let's talk about the new covenant. We don't have time to read all of it, but I'd suggest that you write down Ezekiel 34 through 37. Ezekiel 34 through 37. Those four chapters... I'd suggest that you read all of that in your own time. What you do, what you'll find if you do, you'll find a lot of Leviticus 26 language in those chapters. You'll find the prophet suggesting in Leviticus 26 language a restoration in a messianic age of the new covenant. In other words, all of the the blessings mentioned in Leviticus 26, they're going to come through a Messiah in the New Covenant, which, which means in, in, in more modern terms we might say is that Christ is the hope of restoration. Christ is the hope of restoration. Hope of restoration for fellowship with God, restoration to, to the land, and restoration to blessing and not cursing. Christ is the hope of restoration. Ezekiel 34.25 reads this way, I will make with them a covenant of peace. And the language there is very important. He says, I will make with them a covenant, not I will keep a covenant. So this is not the old covenant, but it's a new covenant. And part of this new covenant, as part of this new covenant, God promises in Ezekiel 34 that He's going to gather His people from all over the globe to place them under the care of one shepherd, a Davidic king whom Matthew reveals to us as Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1.1, Matthew says that Jesus is the son of David. He is this Davidic king, this shepherd that Ezekiel 34 forecasts. Now, if there's going to be restoration, the kind of restoration that Ezekiel 34 and following forecasts. There has to be repentance. That doesn't change from covenant to covenant. God only forgives the repentant. But, but how is that going to happen? If we, like the Jews, like everyone everywhere, if, if, if we have hearts that are bent against God, how does a heart dead in sin repent toward God? Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, glorious verses read this way, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
There's a fancy theological word that we put on all of that. We call it regeneration. The Holy Spirit brings the dead sinner to life, gives him a new heart, a heart that wants to repent and is able to repent, a heart that wants to love God, is able to love God and to obey God. Regeneration is the rescue mission of the Holy Spirit. Rescuing a person from a defective will that can only rebel and, and then can only be cursed. The Holy Spirit rescues that will, frees it to repent and to love and obey God, to function as it was designed to function before the fall. Now, we've talked many times about God being a just God. The punishments for disobedience in Leviticus 26 Those are simply a reflection of God's just character. And so even without an old covenant, God would justly punish the wicked because He is a just God. He punishes all evildoers, even those who are not partakers of the old covenant. And and the fact that regeneration will move a person to love God and obey going forward doesn't change the fact that We all, prior to regeneration, we have a long history of hating God and hating one another, rebelling against Him in the past. How then can there be restoration to God when we have a long list of sins to pay for? If God is just, how can can these curses not be levied against us for our past disobedience? Well... Great news is that Christ became a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. The book of Galatians, the whole book, is another another chunk of, of the Bible that would be worth your time as a commentary on Leviticus 26. Chapter 3 in particular, Paul brings up the fact that the law of Moses states, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And and Paul notes there, as he does in in Romans 3, no one is justified by by obeying the law. No one. Because because no one obeys the law. No one obeys it perfectly. It is impossible for fallen people to do that. And so, everyone then is under under the the, the curse. So what's the solution then? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, what what does Paul mean by that? A parallel passage in Romans 3 says that God put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood. Paul is is reaching back into Leviticus and he's using some of this, this tabernacle language to describe what Jesus has done for us. Jesus was the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for, for the sins of men. The guilt for, for their sins were counted to Jesus as if He had done them even though He didn't. They were counted to, to, to His account. He was cursed for them. He was crucified bearing the wrath of God for those sins. Christ's death then satisfied the wrath of God for those sins so that for those sins there is now no more punishment necessary. You remember a moment ago I mentioned Psalm 103:10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That verse should actually be puzzling to us 
if God is a just God? How can God do that and be just? How can God not deal with us according to our sins? How can He not deal with us or repay us according to our iniquities? Here's the key. He does not deal with us according to our sins because He dealt with Christ according to our sins. And so we should love Psalm 103.10 and every time we read it, we should be thinking, He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities because He dealt with Christ according to our sins and He repaid Christ according to our iniquities. Now, that's how the Lord has dealt with the curses. What of the blessings? I've already mentioned that the prophets, and certainly Ezekiel, use Leviticus 26 language to talk about restoration and blessing in the new covenant. How exactly do those blessings come to us? Well, we we are blessed through faith in Christ. We're blessed through faith in Christ. Not because of our perfect obedience. We haven't obeyed perfectly. Rather, we're blessed because of Christ's perfect obedience. His record counted to us by faith. So, remember, our sins counted to Him by faith. His perfect record of obedience counted to us by faith. Ephesians 1, 3-13. Pastor Jason read that for us at, at the beginning of the service this morning. Here's verse 3 again. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How do we receive all of these blessings of the new covenant? What she describes here is all the blessings in the heavenly places. They come to us in Jesus Christ. The blessings of God, they have only ever been truly deserved by one person, Jesus. But by faith in Him, those blessings are shared with us. I said a few minutes ago that these blessings and cursings for, for obedience and disobedience, they were intended to show our inability to respond rightly, to show that in ourselves we're helpless to please God. That is, we were never going to be made right with God by the works of the law. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Well, Paul goes on there in Romans 3.21 to write this, But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is, obeying the law was never going to work since our rebellious hearts, they only lead us away from God. The only way of salvation would be through faith in Christ. And so the believer... The believer, recognizing his own helplessness and recognizing the sufficiency of Christ, says, I'll not be trusting myself. I'll not be trusting my own good works on the last day. They are wholly insufficient before the great judge. Rather, I'm going to place myself in the hands of Christ. I'm going to trust Him. I trust His atoning death to satisfy the wrath of God for my sin. I'm going to trust His righteous life to earn eternal blessings that I could never earn. And so, Jesus suffers the punishment for sin due to that believer, and the believer enjoys the blessing of obedience earned by Jesus. Okay. Now, 
We've, we've, we've done the necessary homework and we can start thinking again about team buckle down and team let go. Just as a refresher, team buckle down reads all over the Bible expectations for God's people to walk in obedience. And again, there's, there's plenty of this in the New Testament. And team buckle down then wants to say, okay, okay I've trusted Jesus to save me, but now I've got to buckle down and obey so that God stays pleased with me. Team let go reads all of this gospel goodness that we've just walked through and allows that to override rather than inform New Testament calls for obedience. And, and team let go says, Christ obeyed for me. There is no significance to my obedience then. I'm just going to let go and let Jesus do His thing. Perhaps we've already got the pieces that we need to deal with both of these errors. But just to, let sure, just to be sure, let's, let's note that even with this new covenant, there are commands befitting the covenant relationship. Similar to the old covenant, but in different ways, there are commands befitting the covenant relationship. There are commands befitting this covenant, which is a covenant of salvation by grace through faith. None of the Old Testament authors treat faith as merely the doorway to the Christian life, but then find in human strength and willpower the key to Christian obedience. None of them do that. In other words, none of them join team buckle down. Conversely, none of the New Testament authors conclude from the gospel. Isn't this great? We don't need to obey now. In other words, none of them join team let go. So, To make sure that we don't join either one of those teams, let me give you five principles. Five principles to help us think rightly about everything that we've seen and prevent ourselves from veering in the direction of either buckle down or let go. The first principle is this. Obedience is the proper response of a heart saved by grace through faith. Obedience is the proper response of a heart saved by grace through faith. True saving faith in Jesus cannot exist by itself. James teaches in his second chapter that a brand of faith that does not issue forth in works is not a saving faith. And Jesus taught in John 14, 15 that if you love me, if you are mine, you will keep my commandments. So faith in Jesus produces obedience. Now, it isn't obedience that saves us because Jesus already did that. And it isn't obedience that brings our heavenly blessing or averts eternal curses. Jesus did that. And we enjoy all of those things, all those heavenly blessings. We enjoy those by faith in Him. Obedience is the offspring of faith. That's principle number one. Principle number two, and related, related to number one, but number two is obedience is the marquee evidence of faith. Obedience is the marquee evidence of faith. If the result of faith is obedience, then how do I know if I've trusted Jesus? I obey. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 12, 26, the tree is known by its fruit. The tree is known by its fruit. Third principle, 
God desires for the believer to be conformed to the image of Christ in his character and conduct. God desires for the believer to be conformed to the image of Christ in his character and conduct. The gospel is not all about what God has done to take sinners who hated him and one another and merely save them from hell. That's not, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is all about what God has done in Christ to take sinners who hated him and one another and transform them into saints who love him and one another. And this is obvious all over the New Testament. God actually wants his people to live differently as a result of the gospel. And we call this transformation into the image of Christ sanctification. God deeply desires this. Deeply desires sanctification. Fourth, faith in Christ, not sheer human willpower, is the impetus for sanctification. Faith in Christ, not sheer human willpower, is the impetus for sanctification. So, it it is not simply just that we enter the kingdom by faith. We do. We do enter the kingdom by faith. But we also are sanctified by faith. We live. We walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 We walk by faith. And so, if if I find, as as I'm reading the Scriptures, if I find commands in the New Testament and I realize that I'm not walking in conformity to those, the answer to that is not a Christless, pull myself up by the bootstraps and work harder attitude. It's not a Christless effort. Remember principle number two. Obedience is the marquee evidence of faith. Obedience is a proper response of a heart saved by grace through faith. So, so, so the path to greater obedience, listen, this is very important. The path to greater obedience is greater faith in Christ. Now, this is not to say that there is no striving for obedience. You can't read the New Testament and, and, and arrive at that conclusion. There is striving for obedience, but that striving for obedience is striving to trust in Him, as I put one foot in front of the other toward obedience. It's, it's striving to think rightly as I move toward obedience. So, so, so as I am, am, am working towards obedience, I, I'm thinking, Jesus has so fully saved me. Jesus is so magnificent in holiness. I want to honor Him. I want to be like Him. And so, this sinful anger, this ungodly thought, this dishonesty don't belong here. They don't belong in me. In other words, it's a, it, it is a Christ-centered pursuit of, of obedience. And it's faith in Him moving towards it. Fifth principle, sanctification involves a by-faith, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit. Sanctification involves a by-faith, moment-by-moment submission to the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So moment by moment, day by day, as I'm walking through this life, aware aware of what the Lord expects of me. 
I'm praying, Father, I'm, I'm not trusting in me, but I'm, in, I'm trusting in Your Spirit. You say that the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in me, Ephesians 1.18 and following. I believe that, Father. And so by that power of the Spirit, I will choose Your way and not the way of the flesh. I'm trusting in You as I, as I walk toward obedience. So what we find here then is our curses, there's there's beautiful symmetry here, all right? Our curses are removed through faith in Christ. Our blessings are bestowed through faith in Christ. Our restoration to fellowship with God comes through faith in Christ. And our ability to walk in faithfulness, our ability to obey the God who saved us, comes through faith in Christ. So I I return to what I said at the beginning. All of the covenants, all of them, work in different ways to move us toward a salvation by grace through faith. And God desires for us to obey in the new covenant every bit as much as He did in the last. It's in the new covenant that obedience comes just like everything else in in, in the new covenant comes, comes through faith in Christ, I am trusting in you, Jesus, your spirit, as I move toward obedience for your glory. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, let's consider what the Lord would have us each to do specifically with these things. Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving your word to us. We thank you for its clarity and its unity. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit and ministering to us in these few minutes. We pray that He would continue to do so in the next few minutes by helping us to think through what specifically You would have us to do. Father, where have we been abdicating our responsibility to walk in faithfulness? Where, where, where have we been joining a team let go, so to speak? Where have we been walking with Team, buckle down. Where have we been underutilizing the gospel in our obedience? Father, please point these things out to us. Correct our thinking. Correct our lives. And please grant us joy as we think about the truths that we've seen. That the Lord Jesus is our hope for restoration. That He became a curse for us. That we have blessings through faith in Him. And that we can walk in obedience by faith in Him. Pray, Father, that you would help us in these things. We ask for that help in his name. Amen.